my top five podcasters, Chris, 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 Chris Lambert, and probably myself, but this ain't about that. The mundane festival is where you at. If you've been tapped in, you know what's up. If you're a first-timer, hey, welcome to the club. The cost of admission is simply a subscription. Then rating and reviewing it wherever you listen. Don't worry about change-ups. The cast won't break up. Even with that million-dollar contract, show up a stand-up guy who's a stand-up comedian with a stance on everything from food to media. So welcome to the show. Please take your seat. Let's find out what he's got in store this week. Who, me? I'm Don. Will you open the act? Thanks for coming out. Please clap. The Mundane Festival with your host, Chris Lambert. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Mundane Festival podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lamberth, recording this episode for sometime soon. This is episode 702, I think, like the girl group mm-hmm. that uh, had some good albums. Maybe our, our, our guests can talk a little something about that. But we can play that little game we play. You go high, let me sing <laughs> to make you weak. Thinking about you <laughs> boom, boom, every day. That was them. Yeah, it was Subway in 702. Wow. Holy yeah. shit. You might know his voice. I I you you know the show. I'm I'm just gonna get to it. We're gonna get to it. Um I have uh, a friend of the podcast. He has his um his memoir, his first book, you know him mainly as a sports journalist, but he went and took some time away from this podcast mm-hmm. and a time away from uh, things and and opened up his soul in his book, My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us. Morgan Campbell's back on the show. How are you, sir? Man, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. Book's been out for about two and a half three weeks uh i've been doing a lot of interviews uh but this is my favorite one so far and we haven't even started and I oh wow my favorite i would say pre-production is really fun i'll try to make it fun for you i've looked at i've done in my research I, i've looked at something so morgan what was it like when you wrote now i get it they they, they got to do all that stuff but one yes. thing i wanted to talk about and i put some time off from not listening to this it's two months it's maybe it's about almost two months since Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite artists, uh, and I guess yours. We talked about him extensively Who on the this? pod. Glenn Lewis, his yes. Christmas EP. Okay, I haven't heard it. Okay, I listened to it just because I knew you were going to be on. <laughs> and I started thinking about our conversations that we've had about him in the past. And I think you, you and I would say Bomani Jones, I really appreciate your take on music like the way that you talk about music and discuss mm-hmm. music a lot of that's evident in uh in your in your book mm-hmm. um and you said one time about Glenn Lewis when I asked you like you know because you're Canadian you and you have mo- your fingers more on the pulse than mine um why he didn't get further or more success and i think you said something t- around the, along the lines of him not he was a leading man. What was he? What did you say? Do you remember what you said? No, I don't. 
Oh, shit. And it was really good, too. You said just something about, like, I think, was it what, what, damn it, I don't want to be shitting on anybody that's not faint. Making that step to a leading man, it was it was a little more difficult for him or something. I don't remember. I'd have to go back and listen. I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe. And plus the fact that, uh, you know, the market is so fickle and it doesn't necessarily reward just being a good singer. Like, yeah. You know that already. Right. Know? And especially like a male R&B singer from Canada, like those are a lot of obstacles between you and mainstream success. Right. Um, now, like, what's his face? Justin Bieber could could do it because he was a white guy, kind of panamoming blackness, and he had sure. to sign from Usher or whatever. But like, yeah, you know, it's tougher for Glenn Lewis. Um, it's it's sort of like being you know someone who's uh, a really good running back in high school, mm-hmm. and there's just a lot of those, and so standing yeah. out is 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 really difficult, you know. Especially, and now like R&B as a genre barely exists anymore. So it's, yeah. It's, you know, rappers are singing now. Yeah. Drake. <laughs> everybody's, everybody's trying to be him. Yeah. And the, man, don't get me started on like the homogenization of what these kids are listening to. Yeah. I, part of it is I just might be old, you know, and, and, and these, the, just the genre is not, familiar to me because if you're not familiar with the genre every song from the genre sounds exactly the same they might be very different but you know the genre has right. conventions but <laughs> no. this new hip-hop boy i'm like, well i, I felt don't know. that i felt that way too and like i never want to be the old guy that's like they're not making it the same way they used to but they're not they're not yeah. doing that but it's like i know that it's not for me yes but then like I can listen to Killer Mike's album and say, well, that's probably that's probably the best hip hop album of the whole year. I only listened to it one time. And it's not because it it how I feel whether I feel a certain way about Killer Mike, but it's just like, well, that's that sounds like the best. And I see why it won three Grammys. Mm-hmm. And at the same time he got arrested, you know. <laughs> uh, but it it's one of those things where I can I can check on these talent there's there's a lot of talented people in that genre like uh like in the in the soul category like Moonchild, um who th- th- these these are kids from i call them kids but they're probably in their early late 20s early 30s like that they listen to mama's gun they listen to mm-hmm. you know uh the stuff that we were listening to while we were in college you're you might be a couple years older than me but yeah. you, but they were listening to the same stuff that we were listening to, and then yes. they built they built a sound based on that in their own voice. Yes, and which is very a- different from like a lot of the R and B singers I hear today who just like only learn to sing on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, and they they sound and this for better or for worse to me to my ear to my taste mostly for worse they yeah. sound like people who learn to sing on YouTube. Cause, cause I kind of had a, a bucket list, a bucket list situation on in December. I got to see Bilal for the first wow. time. Okay, I, I was ne- just about to mention him, right? Because yeah. like I was about to say, you're never gonna get another Bilal. He's a one of one. Yeah, and it almost it was a performance that was incredible. Anytime you can lead your set off with material that got shelved 
Yes. And people that that know the music. I mean, even though that was like 10 or 15 years ago, probably even longer. 18 years ago. 18. Love yeah, for sale. Love for sale. That was, that was 2006. Oh, six. Okay. So it's like, it's like, holy shit, I can't the balls on this guy. Yep. Not in a bad way, but it's just like not not in not in any kind of arrogance either, where it was just like, oh wow, this is this is amazing. And he did an hour and he would and that was it. And he was kind of he was chewing gum during his set. <laughs> it was so effortless. It was almost like this Miles Davis experience where he was like, yes, he was like, like trying when I see, stuff out. When I see recent video of him, that's what it, that's who he reminds me of. Yeah, and his like mannerisms, right? The fact and that it, he'd be getting skinnier every year. <laughs> and I don't think, and I don't think it came from any arrogance mm-hmm. or anything like that, because I think he's prepping to do something else something kind of big yeah and like maybe some stuff with quest love and and robert glasper i do believe and then he's gonna be at i don't know if you guys have do you guys have city wineries out there no but i know they have them in chicago yeah so like he's he was doing he's doing some kind of a mini residency in the future but i saw him in like bushwick brooklyn which is like i don't know if you've ever been to bushwick brooklyn but it's almost it's like um how can I explain it in Chicago? If you ever remember, if you in your travels ever went to Double Door, what's that off the? It's been so long since I've been to Chicago, but off that blue line, kind of a hipstery. Mm-hmm. At least when I was there, almost twenty years ago. But yeah, that was that was good. But I'm still seeing like, I'm still seeing like younger artists come out and do really good work. But for the most part, it just seems kind of. You just have to find them. You just have to look. Yes, is the thing. And I'm too old to be looking for for stuff. You know what I mean? Do you and your wife ever get a chance to go see like concerts and stuff when you in Toronto and all? No, it's so rare. There was one point last year we had wanted to go see Ari Lennox. Mm -hmm. Um, It was around this time last year. But uh, the club she was playing is called History. I Mm -hmm. think Drake owns it or owns part of it. Okay. It is just prohibitively expensive. Oh, Man, okay. We got a kid. We can't be spending $300 each on concert tickets. You know what I mean? Yeah. Take the whole family to a basketball game for that. And basketball games are expensive. Oh, my God. I, so, I did a comedy festival in San Francisco, and I wanted to see Golden State. The tickets were like 220 bucks to be on the 200 yeah. level. They got to pay for that new arena, man. Yeah. And I ended up not going uh, because the... I, the the show got the game got postponed because of the one of the coaches passed away. So, what what um and so I got re I got refunded and I'm gonna go see a player in in another <laughs> month. Good good. So that yeah, but um, what's it what's it been like for you? Um, how do you feel now that the book is out? Well, one uh. And this is very typical of my life. Like, I didn't really get to enjoy Publication Day. Why? Because Publication Day was scheduled for January 23rd. January 24th, that was a Tuesday. January 24th, I was scheduled to fly to Montreal to go cover this boxing event. Mm-hmm. So I always knew it was going to be a tight squeeze, and I didn't know how much I'd really get to, you know, savor it or whatever. Uh, back up a couple days. The Sunday night into the Monday, January, so to, to the 22nd, uh, I wasn't feeling very good. 
I just thought it was, you know, upset stomach, whatever. And then by like 4.30, from 4.30 in the morning, on the Monday morning till 8.30, I was throwing up. Oh, man. So the day before publication day, I spent the whole day in the hospital. Jesus. I got IV, all this stuff. Stress, out anxiety? Of like, no, I had a stomach bug. Oh, okay. And then uh, staggered out of there at 8 o'clock. And so I was like barely functioning the day the book came out. And then people were like texting me and stuff. And I could barely get out of bed. Oh, man. <laughs> and then from there, the first day I could function, I got on a plane, went to Montreal. So, you know, I didn't really get to to like take it in until the week after the book came out and we had a launch party. Sure. And then I really, you know, got to see everyone and have people pat me on the back and uh, right. do a little reading, sign some books. Then it started to sink in. Um, but the other thing is, uh, I don't know if this happens for everyone, but as a black author, especially like when you go to bookstores, you have to really fight for placement of your book. Mm-hmm. Like, so like right now it's black history month, you know? Yeah. And I go to the bookstore and my book is just in general biography. Mm. It's not like out front on the Black History Month yeah. display table. So I'm like, well, let me fix this. Don't you want to come home in a bookstore? Did you move it? On the Black you hist- t- did you yeah, move no, it? No, I don't tell them. I just do it. Okay. If my book ain't on the Black History Month table, I'd put it on the Black History Month table. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been quite a ride. And uh, um, it's still thinking. And I think the big, the biggest adjustment for me in terms of post-publication is... Uh, you know, all these years I worked in newspapers and you would publish something and it didn't matter like how long you worked on it or how good it was. It could be great. You might've worked on it for six months, but once you publish it, 99% of the people who are ever going to read it are going to read it in the first 12 hours. Wow. After that, it's done. Yeah. And you just yeah. don't, you know, you remember it, but the public doesn't. And there's just no more afterlife. There's no more uh, half-life. The half-life for those stories is very short. Whereas here, you know, some books are like bestsellers right away because they get a ton of pre-sales. I think I did pretty well pre-sales, um, you know, but since the on-sale date, you know, it, it, the week by week, the sales fluctuate. But it's a question of like remembering that the trajectory of book readership is very different. Mm-hmm. And so just because everyone's not reading it this week doesn't mean they're not going to read it in a month from now. But I'm just so used to the big hit of readership and then that big fall off and then it's on to the next thing. Right. Whereas this one, you know, you got to go out, you got to hustle, you got to build readership. Sure. Um, <laughs> and work it that way. Now, are you, are you touring all of Canada? How is that working? No, they just come up as they come up. So, okay. um, uh, cause you were in Vancouver, a couple in Vancouver, uh, a couple of days before Valentine's day. Okay. I'm in Hamilton, which is like, about an hour west of Toronto uh, next weekend. And then there's like a literary festival outside Toronto in the spring. It's supposed to be there. And then the other thing, they just come up as they come up. So it just depends. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to talk about more of the book and I want you to maybe read a couple passages, but can you talk about the kernel that became this piece, this book? Um, I believe in another interview you were talking about um, like a writing class that you took or some type of <laughs> seminar that that kind of sparked some things. Is that is that where it started? So honestly, yeah, it was, uh, 
Summer of 2013, actually. I was just bored at work. I was working at the Toronto Star. Mm-hmm. I was in the business department, which was not where I wanted to be. I just got sent there because the bosses didn't like me. And they they thought that they could bore me to death and get me to quit. <laughs> that was... Okay. That was the, the that was the upper management strategy, but wow. uh, you know, financially, I wasn't in a position to quit, and I also still thought like I could win there, you know. Sure. Um, but I was bored that summer, so I just took a creative writing class just to sort of explore a different type of writing, because you know, I wasn't used to writing about myself with any type of depth, right? Because mm. when you even you know the times I've written columns, I tell tell people this all the time. You know, as a columnist, your job is to have the answers, right? right. You, look, you think of any great columnists, when they write, they are very self-assured. They know what they're saying, they know what they know, and they know what they think, and they're going to let you know. Uh, but the uh, creative nonfiction memoir writing is less about having the answers than it is about the search for the answers. Mm. And you have to be a lot more vulnerable yeah. and a lot less of a smart aleck. So that was a really difficult transition for me. But I just started dabbling with it. And some of those essays that I wrote for that class show up in this book, like in different forms. I just kind of chopped them up and repurposed them. But, you mm-hmm. know, they provided like the inspiration for some of the chapters in this book. You know, for then for a few years, I, just kinda, I, I left it alone. But then I got closer towards the end of my time at the Toronto Star, like around 2019, to the extent that I had free time, you know, with a, a baby in the house. Right. I would tinker with it. Um, and then the opportunity came to take a buyout from the star. And I did it and wrote the book proposal. And uh, I wasn't often running from there because, it was, it was, it was, again, you got a four-year-old, a, a baby at home, and then the pandemic hit. Yeah. You, I, you know, we didn't have, like, daycare or stuff like that. So just, my schedule was really uh, intermittent. But that was how it started. Yeah, because uh, I, I remember when around the time when you were starting, because you, you play the role of uh... – smart black guy on this show where I can, where I can, where I can say, where I can say, this is racist, right, Morgan? And then you could say, and then you could say, yes, Chris. And these are the factors that lead to the racism. And I, I can just come and I can be like, yeah, see, he said it, he's smart and he knows. And so, and and then you were like, yeah, well, I'm gonna, I can't, man, I'm right starting. I was like, all right, well, I'll see you. I'll see you after it's done. Cause I remember, I think I remember us having a, a conversation about, I was like, I'll see you after it's done. And I, oh, yeah, that was, that was like a couple months ago, maybe. No, no, no. This was like, no, well, I did want you on, but I think I remember like, like when you were in book mode. Oh, okay. Okay. okay like okay, you okay. were just like kind of in, in book mode. And I was yes. like, yeah, I'll see you later. I, I get it. <laughs> Speak a little more on the on vulnerable the vulnerability because you do open up a lot in, in this in this piece, and it's was it hard for you because it's something that I'm going through now as a comic and as in my personal life also, but more so as like somebody that putting themselves out there. You in this in the form of uh, prose and me in prose, but also mm-hmm. live performance. Speak to that as a black man, and you're, you, the only way you can speak from it is is as a black man. But just talk about it a little bit. Was it hard for you to do? Yeah, because that's not my default, right? Those aren't my default settings. And again, so much of my first person writing up to this point in my life hasn't been 
this type of creative writing has been mm-hmm. column writing for newspapers or websites or whatever. And again, right. the columnist is comes across as invulnerable. They have the answers. They know the answers. Right. Um, but to write a memoir without showing vulnerability, without giving, mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to say you won't sell because like how many first person books does Donald Trump have? And I guarantee you, that's not a guy that's ever going to show vulnerability or go into detail about a time he fell on his face. Yeah. Without having read The Art of the Deal or whatever, I just imagine that it's chapter after chapter of Trump telling his ghostwriter all the awesome things he did and how he came out on top every time. Right. And if you're Donald Trump and you have a built-in fan base of like cult member followers that are going to buy whatever you're selling anyway, that's fine. And you can write that. That's going to be a boring book, like on the merits, but it'll sell. For the rest of us, you know, I'm not famous enough to just write a whole book listing off my victories. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you never know how a book is going to sell. So if I write a book, I still, it just still just has to be the best book possible. Right. And so, but to do that, I had to be honest with myself and vulnerable with myself and with the audience. You know, and go in and, and explore the times I fell on my face. And there are a lot of them. Like, nobody in this book falls on their face more than I do. But, again, it's because the memoir is about the search for the answers and not necessarily having the answers. So, sometimes I don't fall on my face. But it's only because I had fallen on my face the times before and, you know, learned where to step. Right. <laughs> but, uh, sure. It, but it's a completely new process. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that I'm I'm true. Because, I mean... I see a lot of similarities, even though we, one of it's one of it. I've been writing about that for on on stage for my act, where it's like black people. We have this connection, is where it's like I would always remember going on trips to visit my my parents' uh, family, my grandparents down in North Carolina. We'd stop in in Virginia at a KFC or McDonald's. There's maybe one or two black people in there. My dad sees another guy with his kid, black guy with his kids, and they give each other the nod. Yeah, the nod, yeah. Where it's like, I was like, Dad, did you know, do you know him? He's like, no. <laughs> you know, but I know him. You know, it's yeah, like, so exactly. it's like one of those things. And and the interesting thing, I, I was I was reading this, as I was reading this book while I was in San Francisco, I got to the point of where you're talking about um, birth of a nation and yes. and why you know your teacher they were trying to you, you i guess you guys were trying to figure out why it was so popular in so Canada? what happened was uh and for the people in your audience that don't yes. know uh, i grew up in canada i grew up in toronto my parents are american so when people ask me about this book i tell them it's about growing up black and american in canada in a family where the two halves do not get along Mm-hmm. And so these are all the different threads I weave together uh, to form this book. There's the idea of being a minority and that you're a black person in a country where most of the people most of the people are white. There's the idea of being a minority and that you are we are African Americans in a in a city where most of the black people are from the Caribbean. Um, and then there's the idea of family and how history and and, and Big, big H, capital H history and also family history um, intersect with, you know, each person's identity and how we become who we are. 
and how a lot of my identity was forged uh, in all these conflicts, the black-white conflict, the African-American versus Caribbean conflict, uh, the Jones versus Campbell conflict. And so <laughs> I said all that to say this. Here I am, you know, the son of two African-American uh, expats mm-hmm. going to high school outside Toronto. In this history book we had, this textbook we had for history class, uh, it was Canadian history uh, like from the 1800s through World War II around there. Sorry, no. Sorry, it was uh, 20th century Canadian history was what it was. Because it came and it came all the way up to the 1988 Olympics. Cuts off, cuts off just before Ben Johnson gets caught with steroids. Oh. Because Ben Johnson is in the book carrying the Olympic torch for the Winter Olympics. Uh. It doesn't say anything about the positive test. So that, this book was like mid-1988. It was right there. Okay? Yeah, yeah. But by the time I'm reading, it's about 91. Okay. Right? I mean, I mean ninth, ninth grade around there. Anyway, okay. back to the story Chris is setting up. So what happens is the book has a passage about Birth of a Nation, the movie, and it, it details it, no, it doesn't really, it describes that, not how or why, but that Birth of the Nation was a very popular film in Canada. Mm-hmm. And the reasons it gives for this, the runaway popularity of uh, Birth of a Nation in Canada amongst Canadian audiences was that, uh, you know, it had new technology. It used right. flashbacks right. and different camera angles, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the, to the people in my class, this was satisfactory. But what they didn't know was that I already knew what Birth of a Nation was about because my parents would record these PBS documentaries, like these black yeah. history documentaries off of PBS in Buffalo because we had all the network affiliates from Buffalo. Sure. And I would watch them. And I watched one about... Uh, it was about like uh, post bellum, like all these black stereotypes that arose from the post bellum South when black people, when white people got really nostalgic about mm-hmm. the peaceful days before the war and when all the darkies were happy on the plantation and blah, sure. blah, blah. And this, this documentary went in depth on Birth of a Nation and explained that it was based on a novel called The Klansman. And that the nation being born here was the Ku Klux Klan. And the Klan were these heroes because they hung up black people from trees and ran us off of cliffs, things like this. Right. And so what what ensues is like this debate in my class because I put up my hand and start asking kids, what what do they know about this movie? What's the nation being born? And I'm the one that tells them, and including the teacher, because the teacher's clueless too, that the Ku Klux Klan are the heroes of this movie. And so if we're going to talk about why Canadians embraced this film and flocked to theaters to watch this film, we have to confront the fact that these Canadian film fans were racist mm. because it's only so much new technology you want to look at. If you don't like the the substance of the film, you ain't going, you ain't paying your money. Like 15 cents or whatever movie cost back then, that was a fortune. Yeah. These Canadians packing movie theaters to watch the Ku Klux Klan kill black people. And so that was their Oppenheimer back then. Yeah. And, but you know, and the reason I included that, anecdote in the in the novel is because it was one of those points where like you know it wasn't just my blackness but my african americanness mm-hmm. and my parents uh sort of insistence that we stay connected to the history and to the culture right put me in a position to set my classmates straight about that's, what that movie was about 
that's a thing that I was having this conversation because when I knew I was going to talk to you, I was talking to one of my closest friends uh, and I was calling him on his birthday and I was just saying, yeah, I'm going to interview uh, a journalist about his memoir. And we were talking about, and I was talking to another friend about this who grew up in the Maryland, D.C. area, which as I've gotten older, I've grown to understand that it's not normal for most African-Americans who aren't from that lifestyle isn't normal because you grow up around at least in the in the 80s in the 90s you mid 80s early 90s you grow up around black doctors black lawyers mm. dentists any kind of profession you name it so those authority figures the teachers as well those authority figures in your life are black and then you grow you're you're able to dream more I don't know, recklessly in a way (laughs) for lack of a, I don't know if that's, that's probably not the right word to say wreck, probably reckless to the white man, but (laughs) you can dream, you can dream without any real inhibitions in a way, because that's all, you know, and then growing up, you know, pre us knowing about Cosby where you see these black images on screen, you see Theo, uh, maybe wearing a Howard University shirt mm-hmm. or whether you like, oh, I want to go to college. I I used to talk about wanting to go to college because Theo Huxtable went, <laughs> you know, and that's yeah. that's because this kid on TV did it. I want to do it. So it's not like that for a lot of other people. And then for you and your your parents to have this, uh, what do you call it? like ancillary learning or uh, 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 foot uh, addendums to what, what what's the right way to say? Um, yeah, like supplemental, supplemental reading, yeah, supplemental 100%. reading, supplemental learning to combat that. That's that's how you get by, and that's how I liked your you as a character in the book, which is reminds me a lot of myself. Where it's just like, no, I'm black, and I'm proud of it. I'm not gonna let any of you. I'm not gonna let any of you like shit on my blackness or try to put me put me in my place because i'm probably better than you (laughs) not in and it's it's hard i've said that a few times on the show about like when i think about when it comes to black art because that's the field that i'm in Mm. where it's it's kind of looked down as like second class and you think about these awards you think about Mm. jay-z at the grammy saying oh can you like my wife and you're never going to be completely accepted by them, but just put the good art out for good art's sake and then go where you're celebrated. I did these shows in D.C. opening for one of my friends, Damian Lemon, in D.C. And it was a predominantly, they were predominantly black crowds. But listen, and- man, D- Damian Lemon is a 95th percentile African-American name. <laughs> Yeah, he's 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 a he's a terrific comic, and it's like, and 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 working in front of his crowds, they're black. And I was talking about Patrick Mahomes and how you know people try to negate his blackness, and I said we're not a monolith. Just because his mom's white, he's married to a white woman, and he likes Bud Light, <laughs> we're not a monolith. <laughs> Also, white people only negate his blackness because he is good and black people claim him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
if he was a third string quarterback, white people would not jump up and say, remind us that he's half white. Or when, when, um, when Rashard Mendenhall was proposing the, yes. uh, the racial draft for football and white people jump up and say, who gets Patrick Mahomes? And the, the answer to that question is black people, because, because you people are trying to claim him because he's half white, but you will never call him white. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And right. You can be half white and still be black and black people will let you in. Uh, we're not going to gate gatekeep in that sense, but th- th- it does not work the other way. Right. And if you are half black, you even if white people decide you are not black, they will never accept you as white. Right. Um, and so it's it's like this negative option uh, questioning of Mahomes is blackness like your own white people now are saying well which team gets patrick mahomes yeah the black team gets patrick mahomes yeah because it used to be a time because where he, if you had that one even drop if he's a, even if he ain't black you guys still do not accept him as white mm-hmm. and so no don't don't try to take him now the black team yeah. gets patrick mahomes that's simple yeah and i and i was talking about him on stage and like it's like one of those moments that you'll never some you you may never create again. That may never happen again. A beautiful moment where I was talking about him, and I said, "It used to be a time where if you just if you had that one drop, that's what you were black." Mm-hmm. And this woman in the crowd was like, "Say it, say <laughs> it!" Like I was just like, "Yeah." So they, you know, it's I, I love that that connectedness that we have as black people when you when you try when you don't deny it when you when you're open to it, you know. Yes. Um, yeah, I really like, I really like that. Cause that, that's something that you have to be armed with as a black person, um, in North America. Yes. hundred percent. And if you're, you, you have to get it from somewhere because it's not, everybody's not going to be fortunate to have the parents you had. Everybody's not going to be fortunate to have the parents I had and mm. to live in an area where, you being who you are where there's possibilities for you to be great. Yeah. I mean, that's pressure in and of itself, but I mean, also like what I appreciated about this book was the, you talking about your, your career as a a football player. (laughs) Uh, It made me think about, you know, you always relate, relate things to your life when you're trying to connect to a piece of, of literature or anything. The name of my of my debut comedy album is called Failed Running Back. Yeah, yeah, I have it on my phone. Yeah, so it's like it's like thank you, sir, and <laughs> and and it's like those dreams, those dreams of being a a, a a professional athlete. You obviously went way farther than I did. Sort of. I got to I got to college and found a spot on the bench. But yes, but I you guys you you got to a bowl game though, right? Yeah, the team was good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> The was that was Dar- very good. We talked about this before. Yeah, it was, was Darnell that- Archery for sure. Darnell Archery, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like when did you did you when did you get to the? I mean, you lean to it to, in the book, but were you like, this isn't gonna work? What football? Yeah. Oh man, it was just you know after my sophomore season, you know, because I was a walk on and they weren't paying yeah. for me, um, and they never paid. They never. No, so what happened was uh I feel like we talked about it before, but you Yeah, can... though I was a walk on, they weren't paying for me. Um, you know, school's expensive. I enjoy football, but that's just, you know, twenty hours a week where I could have been making money, you know? Yeah. And uh plus like our coach was starting to 
really feel himself in the sense that like we had a rule book about like how as a walk-on you could earn a scholarship. So it's like if you got to the too deep, got to second string and spent a whole season at second string, mm-hmm. they would give you a scholarship the following off season. So we had a linebacker that wound up doing that, Barry Gardner. He wound up playing for the Jets for a while. He played for the Patriots. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an agent now. And then we had a guy doing that at free safety. And uh, <laughs> one thing I remember is, like, the big decision makers saw this coming, and they did not want to give this kid a scholarship. White, a white guy named Kyle Sanders from Jackson, Michigan. Cool guy. He was on the football team and the baseball team and an engineering major. I don't know how he wow. ever slept. Really cool guy. Good guy. And um, so the decision, like the big decision makers, head coach and whoever's just below him, they're like, we can't have this. So they would take people. They would take running backs, wide receivers, send them over to play safety, hoping they could beat Kyle out mm-hmm. and earn the, that second spring, string spot, bump Kyle down so you ain't got to give him a scholarship. But Kyle was just so good. He just knew what he was doing. He knew his stuff. He was, you know, really hardworking, but like smart player. And uh, and the defensive backs coach too could have played politics, you know, and taking one of these guys who was not as good as Kyle, put him ahead of Kyle, just for the sake of saving that scholarship. But the defensive backs coach was like, no, I, I got it. the best players are going to play. The best players are going to be on the depth chart in the order that they deserve to be. So Kyle's the second string free safety, and that's that. Yeah. And then so after the season, Kyle's like, all right, all right, they're going to sign up to a scholarship. And head coach is like, nope, I'm not doing it. Um, who was the coach? Fit? Was it, uh, it was Gary Barnett. Gary Barnett. That's right. That's right. And so when I heard that about Kyle, I was like, all right, so this is how he's treating people. Like, what am I doing here? Like, I enjoy football. I enjoy my friends, the camaraderie and all that. Sure. Time-consuming and dangerous, and now the coach ain't even really looking out for people like me. So yeah. that's what prompted me to leave. Um. <laughs> One of the things, though, but you you talk so much about your your size and the tenacity that you had to have to even get to that level. Yeah, like that's a that's a lot. It is, but I had, I had never known anything different, so it was normal. Yeah, you know, and I had friends that were. Yeah, my my one friend Mace Freeman was playing at the University of Toledo. He was a year ahead of me. My other good friend Andre Batson, he was playing at school in Canada, but he was like the the best player in the country. Basically, it was. Do you mm-hmm. remember Jerome Payton? He used to play for the Saints, wide receiver. Who? What Light college? Skin black he guy. He went to. He wound up at the University of Washington, is where he got drafted out of. But he did his first couple of years of school in Canada. Vaguely. So back then in the mid '90s, it was Andre Batson and Jerome Payton who were like head and shoulders above every other receiver in Canadian college ball. Okay, you know, Andre is a good friend of mine, so I always had these two guys to sort of look up to and and, and chase after every summer. So the, the the idea that like you know it involved a lot of hard running and hard lifting was never foreign to me, you know, and I and it I didn't it wasn't a shock to me because mm-hmm. those guys it, had initiated me into it even before I got to college. Give me your thoughts on the college portal and how you think that's changed sports. Like, because this is making me think of this, and you you weren't on when on the show when all of it you know kind of came about. So, what are your thoughts as a former athlete on um, college athlete? I don't for the players. I don't mind it. Um, you know, because again, the coaches have always had that flexibility. Right, you can change jobs without 
having to sit out or um, lose money or eligibility or anything like that. Uh, and so in theory, it makes sense. It's fair in that uh-huh. sense. Two things. One, just the way it's set up is just stupid. You cannot have free agency several times a year every year. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> the coaches complain about it, but again, the yeah. NCAA can make rules. They just have chosen not to, and they want to go to uh, Congress and ask Congress to make rules about how to govern a sports league, and that is not how it works. When the, N- when the NFL changed the overtime rule, did they have to go to Congress and say, hey, pass a law that – requires both teams to touch the ball. Right. No. You are your only, you have your bylaws just figured out. Same with paying players. Um, and so everyone complains about the chaos, but like the NCAA and or all the conferences or these conferences that look like they're about to break away from the NCAA, they could just make some rules. Yeah. Here's how long you got to, just like in the NFL, you got to stay a couple years. You got to, you have to play out your first contract before you become a free agent. Same thing you can do. You could, as long you can make rules. These folks have no rules and they're acting and they act like they're prisoners to the lawlessness when they have created the lawlessness and they won't make laws. So don't whine to me about how lawless it is. Mm-hmm. But the thing, what, what the, 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 the big thing I find that the transfer portal does is, uh, it's, um, it, it, it makes the late bloomer a lot more rare mm. in the sense that like look at Terrell Owens. He went to, he went to Tennessee Chattanooga. Yeah. If a guy that good winds up out of high school going to Tennessee Chattanooga. It's likely because he's a late bloomer, you know, and he wasn't, didn't, wasn't, maybe wasn't a five-star recruit coming out of high school, but still had some growing to do. And he grew into what he was going to become. But like these days, after those first couple of years, when you stand out at a smaller school, here comes Georgia, here comes Alabama, here comes Michigan, and you can transfer, right? Especially now because they can offer you money indirectly. And so it's really hard if you're like Ball State, you know, uh, where did Roethlisberger go? Miami of Ohio. If you're Miami yes. of Ohio, like were you going to keep a, a Ben Roethlisberger for four years? I doubt it because once he has that big first or second year, a bigger program is going to come calling. Yeah. But at the same time, like it becomes harder to build depth at the big programs because if you're Alabama, your first string is all NFL prospects. Your second string 10 years ago was also M- NFL prospects. Mm-hmm. But now some lower level division one team is calling your second string cornerback or like, I don't know if they can tamper directly, but you know what I mean? Someone's calling them and saying, Hey, why are you sitting on the bench at Alabama? Mm-hmm. You come to Arizona and start. And so yeah. for the bigger programs, it's, a, it's harder to build that, to maintain that top tier depth because they know now that like you're too deep, your second stringers, if they are good, someone's coming to poach them. Doesn't it seem though, to me, even before the portal came about it seemed like there was more even though you have your top tiers like your alabamas but i just noticed like me just be somebody being on the outside being a casual fan not like i used to be invested you know when bill walsh college football was out <laughs> and having the athlon sports uh, yep. almanac what it almost feels like within the last 10 years it seemed like there's more parody. Like it's like, oh, all these guys are good. 
a lot of these kids are good where you see some of these upsets or you see this kid be like, why is this kid at this school killing it? Yeah, well, especially now, well, one, because you can, there are just more ways to induce that person mm-hmm. to, to come to your school yeah. and, uh, and more opportunities because the portal, I think, opens twice a year. Mm-hmm. And opens again for anyone, like if your coach has coach gets fired or whatever midseason. There's I can't even remember the exact rule, but like when uh, Pat Fitzgerald got fired at Northwestern, anyone could go and anyone could transfer without losing eligibility, right? Yeah. That's how they lost one of their linebacker recruits. The kid went to Ohio State, but um, yeah, and you know the other challenge is uh, building continuity. Now the thing is, somebody has to win every year. Right. Right. But make from year to year, making sure that it's your team is a lot tougher because it's harder to build continuity because you don't know who's back from year to year. Yeah. Uh, and so I, it, to me, it makes it a little bit harder to predict unless you were just that like in the same way that Georgia and Alabama have been at or near the top the last four or five years because they've just been they've just had this critical mass of five star recruits and talent still trumps everything in college football, but it is just, it is a lot harder to keep track of the talent or to keep uh, two and three platoons of it in one place at one time. Yeah. That, and it, is that, and I guess, can you kind of see the, I have um, the N- NBA on, uh, I pay for the NBA ticket. People talk about the, so many high scoring games and, the kids don't know, don't have the skills coming into the league because they don't stay. They're one and done and they're mm-hmm. going to, you know, like Carmelo Anthony was talking about that on his podcast where he was just saying how there, there's not going to be. A, he said his son is going to play. He's not going to worry about being one and done. He's just, you're just going to go where you go to school and you're going to play and not worry about, you know, but he's Carmelo Anthony's son. Yes. Ion. So. I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like I want these kids to do to get as much exposure as they can so they can go to the NBA or the NFL. De- NCAA's bullshit be damned. You know, whatever, you know, but is that is that messing up the game, do you think? Or um well, I'm not the first person that's noticed this or point this out, but like and this might just be me me being old. But the level of play in the NCAA and like the and the overall caliber of athlete is not what it was 20, 25, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like I look at these games now and they look a lot slower. The athletes do not look as lean little. Or faster as explosive. There's a lot of guys I see now that's like, you might not have played for Northwestern in the 90s. And Northwestern was not good in the '90s. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And they're, but they're at like the top tier schools in the Big Ten. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact now again that the G League exists and overtime elite exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another league that I'm you know I'm drawing a blank on, but there are just other places to play if you're between 18 to 22 to get ready for the NBA. Um, and so at least the NBA has done a good job. Well. Yeah, they've realized that like they can't just depend on the NCAA as their de facto minor league system. Right. And smart NBA teams actually use the G League instead of just like warehousing players there, but actually use it to develop players. Like the Raptors were good at that 
20, you know, 17, 18, 19, like Fred Van Vliet was a G League guy. Pascal yeah. Siakam was a G League guy. And they actually used it to build these guys up and to bridge that gap between Got college and – Yeah. Um, you know, but, but as as the NBA figures out more ways to develop and incubate talent, like it's the NCAA that suffers. Mm-hmm. So far, football has not had has not you know the NFL doesn't has not been able to cultivate some separate farm system, and they are still happy just using the NCAA as their farm system. Sure, but uh, yeah, basketball is where you really start to feel it. What do you think about? This? Just give me before I want to jump back into the book, but give me your assessment of Deion Sanders. What are you, what are your thoughts on Coach Prime? Um, yeah, it's funny. The season ended kind of where we thought it would mm-hmm. at the beginning, before yeah. we all got swept up in the hype. In the sense sure. that they were better than the previous season's team, but given their lack of size and lack of depth, they were always going to hit the wall. Now. Um, you know, they won those first few games, but they were all sort of precarious wins. Uh, we got caught up because Deion Sanders, and this is, you know, he's a smart guy. He's very good at getting attention, very good at getting people to believe in him, you know? Um, and we were excited about this team in ways that we should only have a right to be excited if prime Deion Sanders is actually playing for the team. Right. His skills, he cannot like transfer them to you, but just by being around you, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it, the, the, the lack of depth was always going to catch up with them somehow. Now, if your team lacks depth, that can hamstring you in a game, right? Where your best guys just get tired in a given game and, you, and the guys you got to bring in to, the, to replace them are not good. Or it can catch up with you across games, which is what it appears happened with Colorado. So they had they won those first few games, but they were all really hard fought victories. And Travis Hunter was playing like 120 snaps a game. Yeah, that that's what I was. He's and so the lack of depth didn't show up in any one of those games. But like right. as the season progressed, and the performances got flatter and flatter and flatter, or they would get in these close games and just couldn't close them out. That's where the lack of depth, you know, really starts to trip you up. Mm-hmm. And what I don't know is how you rebuild depth between seasons, given what we just talked about with the transfer portal. It's really hard to hang on to your pretty good players and the guys that might become good because they're always looking for their opportunities because people don't necessarily want to sit on the bench for two or three years anymore. Yeah. And so I, it's hard to say what's going to happen with them next year. I did see this video where they had like some Marines come in and put the team through this boot camp workout, which huh. like really looked difficult, but it did not look like it made <laughs> these guys better at football. And this is what a lot of <laughs> coaches under- misunderstand, what a lot of fans misunderstand. Yeah. Right? Is that just because something is difficult does not mean it makes you better at football. That's and these These Marine Corps boot camp workouts are great at making Marines. Yeah. But as a football player, you got to be strong. You got to be fast. And like carrying your teammate back and forth across the field for 400 yards is not a test of power. It's not a test of speed. And so <laughs> in the context of football, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Give me some guys that run really fast and are powerful, explosive, agile. 
that's who's going to win. Not yeah. the guy that can duck walk for 600 yards or crawl under barbed wire. That's very tough, but it ain't football. Yeah, it's just that that um, comparison to football being so militaristic and yes, and wanting to be something that it's not. Where it's just yes. it's a game. It's a fun. It's a fun game. It, and it's all. It's it's a it's and it's a sport where you need yeah. to recruit and train certain attributes. And crawling under barbed wire is not one of them. Like if you make David Goggins your strength and conditioning coach, you're gonna lose every week. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I wanted, yeah, I, I wanted to, I was just curious to know your thoughts on that. Cause we, it's been a while since you've been. I always have thoughts on sports. You know this. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I love, I love to hear them. Cause I, I was thinking like they, they're really small and your best, their best player, Travis Hunter is a little guy as talented as he is. Does he need to be out there all the time? No, this is no, not at all. Right. Like I don't, cause you don't want that guy to get hurt. Even in Madden, or just, or, or just get tired. Yeah, you wouldn't use that kid and and Bill Walsh all the time. No, <laughs> you you had to sit him down and use another guy. Well, I wanted to go back to to the book, and I I, I had a we in pre production we had some passages that I I picked out that I'd like you to yes. read. One of the things I appreciate about this book, and I think maybe it's just the way my brain is, is. Even since I was a kid, I always thought cinematically. Has anybody ever come up, approached you about this and thinking about like making a script? You doing a screenplay? <laughs> Not yet, but I don't think enough people have read it yet. And I can play uh, one of your family members. I think if <laughs> maybe I think if enough people read it and the right people read it, like now some of the people that have read it, yeah, they they said it said the same thing you said. Okay, good. Okay. Go get that Netflix money. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. But what you know, I need the right person to read it, and uh, you know, we could be off to the races, but because uh... it reminds me, it gives me like Wonder Years vibes, especially, <laughs> especially the your stories in general, because that's that's the, I mean, for the reader, it's easier to connect to you, and I guess maybe just me being a black guy that's close to your general where maybe you're like how what year were you born morgan 76 okay so you're four years older than me so yeah. we're in the same same generation i was born in 80 so it's like i was like okay i can i understand i understand the musical references i understand yeah so it's like one of those things i want you to read this the the start with the passage that maybe during your throughout your tour you've been asked to uh talk about this um about your i guess you just said do you want to? Most people want me up? to read the football. Mostly people want me to read the football stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I'll read this. Tell me. You read this passage about your your mother being harassed by racist white kids. Okay. And so, uh, trying to figure out where to start. Can you start? It would about years before the redneck showed up. Maybe. Is that good? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then, where do you want me to read to? Wherever you feel like it's a good stopping point to where I would talk, where we talked about like the, just the, the way the storytelling set up, there's flash forwarding, get a little bit of that in to where you feel like is a good stopping point. I got time. Okay. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read from years before mm -hmm. on page 26 Okay. To next moves on page 29. Sounds good to me. You ready? Yes, So sir. to set this up, uh, 
the book is called My Fighting Family, and a lot of it has to do with family fights. But again, like it's it's about that sort of superficially, right? Um, but, but this particular chapter now is called My Fighting Family because uh, it's it's it starts with some family fights, but it also gets into the roots of why we are the way we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, what happened was my grandfather. Uh, grew up in a white neighborhood. He's black. Grew up in a white neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, and so always had to surrounded by all these white people. Especially in school, when he got to high school, like teachers would try to deny him things. And he had to learn to advocate for himself, mm-hmm. and winds up just seeing a lot of things in his life as as fights that he has to win. Yeah, <laughs> for better and for worse, right? So if you're you got to fight the school board, that's good. You got to win, but like. You know, just mundane disturbances in your family. Like these don't all have to become big fights, but that's my mm-hmm. grandpa. He like, right. this is a fight. I gotta win. <laughs> and that that thread goes through the whole book. And uh, you know, my mom winds up growing up in the same house. So one day she's walking home, uh, and she's at West Pullman Elementary School, and the only black students are her and her siblings. <laughs> is this nineteen fifty four? Yeah, it's around nineteen fifty four. Okay. Uh, so they live for Chicagoans listening. They lived at 118th and Halstead and the school was a few blocks east of there, like 119th and Union around there. Uh-huh. I think I'm counting my blocks in the right direction. It's a little bit east of their house. But anyway, so here is. Uh, so what happens is. Uh, she's getting ready. She goes home for lunch. She's getting ready to go back to school. She gets out onto um, 119th Street. And here's what happens. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Sorry, and this is happening uh, around the time that some rednecks had moved into the neighborhood and started throwing rocks at my grandparents' house because they were rednecks. They lived in a garage, and they saw some black people living in a house and just could not take it. Mm. <laughs> could not take it. They started throwing rocks at the house. So anyway, all right. this is all happening around the same time. So we'll start. Years before the rednecks showed up, though, Jeannie, who is my mom, who grows into my mom. Jeannie already knew white people's violence didn't just occur in newspaper pages or her grandparents' stories from back home. It was in the environment, like bad weather or a flu virus. One more hazard to guard against. So when, at 11 years old, she saw the shadows of those three white boys behind her and heard their footsteps closing the gap between them, she tightened the grip on the strap of her knapsack and kept marching east on 119th Street. She didn't need to see their faces to know they were white. This was West Pullman in 1954, only four short blocks to school. The taunting started when they crossed Union and headed toward Lowe. Not too loud, sing-songy, but constant. Tar baby, one of them kept saying. Tar baby. Hershey bar, another started. Hershey bar. Jeannie couldn't match voices to faces. Doing that would mean looking back at the three boys stalking her. She was too terrified and, even as a sixth grader, too cagey with racists to make that mistake. Looking back would mean acknowledging the taunts, and giving the bullies recognition means they win. When you and your siblings are the only black kids in a white neighborhood in 1950s Chicago, you learn that lesson early. So Jeannie did her best Jackie Robinson impression. She tuned out the taunts and kept walking. Tar baby, Hershey bar, 
to them, it was a game. Race baiting is risk-free entertainment on the way back to school after lunch. Three boys against one little girl. If somehow this turned into a fist fight, it would quickly devolve into a beating. Three white boys against one black girl. Even if it came to that, who would the authorities believe? One black girl or three white boys heading to a white school in a white neighborhood. The boys had Jeannie outnumbered and outflanked, and they knew it. Tar baby. Hershey bar. Louder. Closer. Boulder. They continued east along the sidewalk on the south side of 119th Street. Traffic to their left and, and plate and glass storefronts to their right. Jeannie tried to ignore them, but she didn't want to block out their voices. She needed to hear them, to gauge the situation, to assess the level of danger. If she could just cross Wallace, she'd be able to see the school and maybe a teacher would scare the boys into falling back. She kept track of the distance, counting down the steps, yard by yard. Tar baby, Hershey bar. Maybe the boys were counting steps too. Maybe they aimed to escalate this conflict before they reached the schoolyard, where teachers could defuse it. Their sneers assumed a menacing edge. Tar baby. More obnoxious. More contemptuous. More privileged. Jeannie still hadn't turned to look at them, but she knew they were close enough to touch her. She could hear it. She could sense it with the skin on the back of her neck. Tar baby. They crossed Wallace. Hershey bar. Enough. Jeannie squeezed her right hand into a fist. She stopped walking, planted her right foot, and pivoted. A quick story from Jeannie's future helps explain what happened next. My sister, Dana, leafing through a stack of my mom's old photos, finds a picture from prom night. Junior year at Fenger, Jeannie's hair is freshly permed and her glasses firmly in place. Thick lenses and thicker frames. She's in the hallway of that house on Halstead, a little younger than my sister Dana was the night she found the photo. She's in a pink strapless dress, smiling wide and standing with her back to a wall-mounted mirror. You can see the back of her head and the top of her dress uh, and the exposed skin in between. Mom, what's going on with your shoulders? Dana said. Look, Morgan, look at mom's shoulders. Yeah, mom, what's happening back there? I said, what are those lumps? What lumps? My mom said, not even looking up from her needlepoint. What are you fools talking about? Oh, wait, Dana said. What? My mom said. Wait, those are your muscles? Morgan, look at mom's muscles. Jeez, mom, I said, you were ripped. My mom just shrugged, still busy with that thread and needle. I guess... <laughs> If the white boys had accosted her on prom night, maybe they'd have noticed Jeannie was as compact and powerful as a stick of dynamite and decided against lighting the fuse. But they couldn't see those muscles under her school clothes, and they didn't realize they had picked the wrong target until her right fist crashed into the biggest kid's left jaw. The force of the punch spun him sideways and sent him stumbling. The impact turned his legs to jelly. In a boxing ring, he would have landed face first like Roberto Duran did against Thomas Hearns. 
But on 119th Street, he careened headlong into a storefront, his forehead bashing it so hard the plate glass nearly shattered. As the window wobbled, all four kids stood frozen, contemplating their next moves. So there you go. Now, this is where this where I was like, oh, shit, this is a masterful storytelling. (laughs) Appreciate it. This is like because when you because anybody could just say, yeah, they're calling you her tar baby and Hershey bar. And then she hits him and beats the kid up. (laughs) But that flash forward to the that that's just fucking brilliant, man. That's that's really where I locked in. I mean, there's a lot of gems in this book, but that to me, that's one of my favorite passages uh, of the book, I I would say. Um, So so the part of it is just the fact that my mom, you know, would tell us that story. mm -hmm. And so just a lot of those details about like where they were along 119th Street, what side of the street they were on. Yeah. Because my mom would tell us the story. And even now, like she describes it as like one of the most satisfying moments of her life because she hit sure. that guy so clean. And a lot of people that have read the story, black people especially, you know, really relate to that part. Yeah. And like just feel this vicarious thrill and satisfaction. Right. Because so many of us have been like on the job or whatever and somebody's on you like that. Mm-hmm. And maybe not calling you a tar baby or a Hershey bar, but doing the corporate version of that. Of course. And you're like, oh, if I could just punch this motherfucker, I would feel so good. Yeah. But you can't punch him because you'll get fired. Yeah. Right? So when people read that, they're like, ooh, yes. I yeah. felt that. I've, I've wanted to do that so badly. I'm so glad you got a chance to do it. Now, is this, I'm trying to remember because it's been it's been a, a, a little over a month since I read it, but what, almost a month since I read it, what's the, because there was a reason why your your grandfather moved down okay. there for work, right? So what had happened? What what had happened was, yes. um, yeah, when they came up from Texas, they had originally settled in Bronzeville, mm-hmm. like around 39th and Wabash area. If people yeah. are familiar with Chicago, and then uh, <laughs> he got a job. My great grandfather uh, got a job at this lumberyard in West Pullman, which is a long way south. And yeah, it's a little bit west. Um, and so the people that own the lumberyard also owned a bunch of houses in the neighborhood and mm-hmm. they would rent the houses to the employees. So yeah, the guy that owned the lumberyard, like he did not discriminate. And he was like, yeah, this is my employee. I just hired him. I like him. And uh, I'm going to rent to him, even though he's black, I'm still going to rent to him like I rent to any of my other employees. I ain't going to treat him any different. Right. Which is how this all-white neighborhood wound up with one black family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that because that was somewhere it's like you have to, and it kind of leads to the colonel. And maybe we can talk about this briefly, and then I want to wrap it up. I don't want to have you hold you too long. But when you discover James Baldwin for the first time. Yes. And how you talk about your mother. Again, like one, what what do we call it? The the supplemental reading the supplemental reading yes supplemental docs in order to get you through your life as a young black child uh she had already experienced that it was time for you to to you to learn um just speak speak to that i mean i don't want to get too much in the way she didn't push it on me mm-hmm. um 
and just to get the readers caught up and hopefully you all get to like read the book read it view it all that stuff but anyway uh and one thing y'all learn about me because i'm a sports writer i'm not scared of spoilers because i'm just so used to writing about things that everyone has seen on tv anyway right so whatever but yeah so the way my family winds up in canada is my grandfather was a musician um played piano he used to get booked in toronto really liked it and so when he would come back he would bring my grandmother and then uh my uncle who was the youngest of their kids and still living the only one still living with them so they all moved to canada in 1966 my parents followed them in 1969 and then started having kids a couple years after that so that's how we all wound up growing up um in toronto but again uh because my parents were still really connected to chicago you know we were always going back there we live toronto's not that far from buffalo so we go to buffalo we go to detroit like in terms of again not just being close to the united states but like having a, 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 a an authentic organic connection uh, to African American history and culture, uh, that's what we had because of where we lived and because of my because my parents were the way they were. Um, and so my mom did not push James Baldwin on me. My parents just kind of led me to it in the sense that when I was about eight or eight eight turning nine, they got me a subscription to Sports Illustrated, and so. That was what really got me into the habit of reading and the hobby of reading. Um, you know, especially as a kid that was into sports but didn't want to seem too nerdy, that was a way to read a lot without like looking like a geek. Even though in reality, I was, guys, I was a loser. I was a geek. But um, <laughs> you know, it's around midway through tenth grade, and Chris and I talk about this all the time. Like somebody's chronological age versus their black age. Yes. Um, yes. And sometimes you'll find somebody like a Kaepernick. Right. You know, grew up with a white family, comes into his blackness kind of late. Mm-hmm. And he is like at 30, the way a lot of us were at 15. Yes. And you start figuring yeah. out like that racism exists. And you become very curious <laughs> about how it works. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. So now yeah. like you want to point it out everywhere. That's racist, mom, mom, dad, that's racist. And your parents are like, we are so yes, far son, ahead of you. We like, know. Yeah. We know young Padawan. We know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, but me at 15, I'm 15 years old. My chronological, my, my black age and my chronological age are perfectly aligned. So I'm sure. at home listening to public enemy and like X clan and stuff. Right. Leaders of the new school, all this stuff. So my interest in reading is really peaked. And here's this book, The Fire Next Time. It's right there. I started asking my mom what it's about. And she's like, yeah, Fire Next Time. Because, you know, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. And what it means is the next time there's a big uh, reckoning, uh, when God destroys the earth, it's going to be with fire. And what it's going to be is black people burning everything down because white people cannot come up off of their racism. So I was like, this is my kind of book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when she described it like that, I was like, hey. Yeah. Put the what do the kids say now? Inject this into my veins, and so <laughs> yeah. But what Baldwin, what what reading that book did to me did for me too was you know it 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 got me into the idea, got me onto the idea of like writing books, reading books. Like the idea of becoming a writer came later, but you know Baldwin talks a lot in the second part of that book about like the changes that people he knew underwent when they turned fourteen when they realize they either better have a gimmick or just settle in for a long, hard, difficult, unfulfilling life mm. in the ghetto, you know, because as black people, 
life was not going to be fair to you. If you didn't, if you couldn't work some angle to vault yourself up out of the ghetto, like it was intended for you to live and die there unfulfilled. And so, uh, you know, I didn't live in the hood, but I, with gusto, superimposed the circumstances of Baldwin's life onto my own. So I was like, man, I need a gimmick. I need a thing. <laughs> Even though, and I was 15. I was like, man, I'm already behind schedule. Yeah. And so like, but what it did for me was like indirectly, indirectly just nudge me towards taking a bunch of things more seriously, like even including football. And Baldwin is as far as you were going to get from, uh, you know, a jock. Sure. Baldwin's a guy that thought Floyd Patterson was going to beat Sonny Liston, right? That was what. They, he was covering that fight maybe for Esquire for some a magazine, and he he was convinced that Patterson oh. was going to win this fight, right? That shows you how much he knows about sports, not much. But it did kind of prompt me because I, you know, I felt like I needed to get good at something. Yeah. And football was right there. Like writing was also right in my face, and I was kind of ignoring it, ignoring all the signals, you know? But it did, you know, nudge me towards taking something more seriously because James Baldwin said, I needed a gimmick. I needed a thing. I needed a specialty by the time I turned 14. At 15, I didn't have it, but I was like, I better have this thing in place by 16. And it turned out to be football, even though it was really writing, but I didn't recognize it. I didn't recognize that until about 18. But that is so true, though. Like, I think for me, it was maybe around that age, 13, 14, when I started, when I was self-aware enough to know that sports weren't for me. Mm -hmm uh coming into my blackness even before that but just like being in one of those schools where we were ink our blackness was uh i don't know incubated from going to a predominantly black catholic school from k to sixth grade and then seventh and eighth grade moving to a school where folks it was predominantly white there were black kids but you knew there was a difference mm -hmm. and then i just i kind of blame my late great dad for, he's been gone for two years. I want to talk about dead black dads in a <laughs> bit, but uh, I he mentioned the fact that we did this production of Sound of Music, and my listeners know this. I think um, I was in eighth grade, and I played Max, who was the third lead, who had two songs, and he got the Von Trapp family out of Germany, away from the Nazis, and I was the comic relief. And I was the black lead, only okay. black lead in the play. And my dad told me that the black parents were so proud of me that that made me feel good. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this, I'm not good. I I could have probably did something with being a, a defensive or offensive lineman if I gave a shit, but I right. wanted to be a running back. Yeah, Maybe, maybe an alternate universe me would have, had a string of car dealerships and been <laughs> had a divorce and a kid that wouldn't talk to me. Uh, so I was thinking maybe that would be an, a, another life for me. And I remember playing baseball after my, after my, um, after that show, I played baseball and I had my worst year, but I remember there was one black dad on, you know, he was a, one of the parents. And every time I'd strike out, he'd say, that's okay, Hollywood. That's all right. You're good. Because he knew he's like, you're an actor. You're not a yeah. base. You're not an athlete. Yeah. You're an actor. And so that that was something that kind of made me say, okay, maybe I can cultivate the arts, the performing mm -hmm. arts. Um, where were we? We were talking about 
Baldwin. You're either going to talk about something else you wanted me to read or the part that made you cry, one of the two, or both. I want to do both those. I want to do, the, do a, a more more of a funnier, a lighter, a lighter portion where you just describe, um, I don't know, black lingo, black. Okay. What do you, how this do you, is, uh, how do you say that? Yeah. So this is page one in the book book. Yeah, page 139. Yeah, I got the galley. Okay. Talking to kids at family reunion. Yeah. And so we'll set this up. Yeah. Um, because, again, big picture, we are Black Americans. My family you know, grew up in Canada. So I'm very Canadian, but I'm also very American. Right. And um, this particular chapter is called Equipment for Living. Chicago 1992, Equipment for Living. Because mm-hmm. and it really crystallizes the things you've you've been talking about this whole podcast about mm-hmm. black parents having to equip their kids, yes, to go navigate this world to do battle in this world sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so this, I take this trip to Chicago with my dad. We used to, you know, we go to Chicago all the time, but this particular trip was a little bit different because it was me and my dad. You know, and he starts like letting me know things about his family, you know, his dad's secret kid, this and that. Um, So this chapter is really heavy in some ways. Uh, This passage comes right after my dad gets into this big stare down with the fruit of Islam security guard outside of uh, Louis Farrakhan's mansion. But um, because so much of it, again, is deals with, uh, you know, my relationship with black American culture. And um, it's funny because I hear people say, uh, I'm just as black as you. You hear people say this, right? Oh, of course. Might be, might be White a, people say that? White people say no, that. No, right? no, no, no. Different types of black people. Oh, oh, that's, oh, I wanted to, okay. Yeah. I'm just as black as you. Mm. I'm just as, and it's usually someone they're being, def- they're, they're on the defensive. Because mm-hmm. maybe they're like politically conservative or whatever. They ain't got no oh. friends, nothing like that. You know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. Like, not to single out Michael Porter Jr., but a Michael Porter Jr. type. I don't know if he's ever said that, but you, you see what I'm saying. You see, like, the type of person. Like, imagine if Sage Steele said, I'm, I'm just as black as anyone else. Oh. Which, under the unknown blood doctrine, she is. Right? Oh, sure. Now, here I am. And I'm very secure in my my identity as an African American. I'm not as black as my dad. I'm not as black as my uncle Ken. Because my dad grew up on the south side of Chicago. Uncle Ken grew up on the west side of Chicago. And now, if I'm of the opinion that African Americans have no culture, then yes, everyone is as black as everyone else. If you're talking about like having grown up immersed in a culture, not just connected to it, immersed in it, in the same way that if you got friends whose parents are from Japan, mm-hmm. the friends that are your age are Japanese, their parents are much more Japanese. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I don't have any problems admitting that I am not as black as my parents are. That's fascinating to me, dude. Like that's. I would, and I wanted. I want you to get in this, but you you triggered something in a good way. Where I was cleaning up at my mom's house. My dad passed away in December twenty twenty one. Oh, that's recent. I'm, I'm, I didn't. Did I know that? I mean, I might have posted it on Facebook oh, or something. But yeah, I was it, off of Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
So it's like, and I was looking at his, one of his old ID cards, like work ID cards. Mm -hmm. And I, it's my dad. It's clearly him. And I'm like, who is this dude? <laughs> it's like, he was so much cooler than me. <laughs> and I think that cool, that coolness equates to blackness also. Well, also, it's just the fact that, like, if you're, if the only way you can say every black person is just as black as every other black person, every yeah. black, every African American is just as African American as every other African American is to say, is to accept that African Americans have no culture. Right. That's always the flip side of that debate. And this is the messaging we're always getting. That, I right? didn't, and you, I heard you talk about that before. And I, I never, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. I never thought I was just yeah, like, cause like the first generation kids, like the children of immigrants, they are never, they are of their parents' country, but they are not of that country the yeah. same way their parents are. And we don't argue that. Mm -hmm. Right. But when it comes to African-Americans, we change the rules, which is very familiar. And all of a sudden, because you want to tell us we have no culture. Therefore everyone is on equal footing in terms of how they engage the culture and how they live it. And they try to and steal I'm, it. It's the, it's the Paul Mooney thing I was talking about on last week's show was like, everybody want to be a nigga, but they don't want to be a nigga. Yeah, well, exactly. And it's, and it's like with my dad, cause he used to say, he used to say, yeah, you're black, but you don't, you're not black. My dad would say that to me. I was like, dude, you sent me to private school. <laughs> that's that's on you, dude. Yeah. Like I I, I know who I am and I'm proud yeah. of who I am, but it's not the my blackness isn't gonna look like yours. I would always just think that he was a lot cooler than me. Yes. And I, I think that and I'm and I'm not ashamed to say that, but I think but that you he was. But but I mean that whole generation of dudes was so much cooler than we could ever dream of being like. Yeah. Could anybody coming up today just like be what Frankie Beverly was like in '79, like in the in oh. the all black in the in the all black jump or all white jumper with the baseball cat? Yeah, that's just an effortless cool that like, yeah. we can't approach. Right. So yeah. So in, in, at a few points in this book, I you know I got I I, I depart from the main narrative to to explore different ideas. Uh, and I I come back to language a couple times. Yeah. So in equipment for living, uh, I'm talking about you know our parents. I'm off on a tangent. It's a little detour. Talking which about I love which I, it's, it's it's quite a few of these, but I enjoyed them. This is yeah. It's a, you have to develop a sense of like when to take the detours and how long the detour should be. Yeah. You still have to, if we're talking music, you still got to play the song, you know. Right. And uh, so here I'm talking about. Uh, you know, my sisters and I, how we related to African-American culture and other kids, like growing up, going to family reunions. And this is uh, about language because we realized that we did not sound like our cousins from Grand Rapids and they didn't sound like us. Mm -hmm. um, and we did not sound like our, our, our parents, especially my dad, you know. <laughs> and so uh, I'll read from by 15 and I'll stop at uh, ill-equipped. Okay. All right. By 15, I could hear in Black American English a unique species of a common language, not just slang or a collection of broken grammatical rules. I learned from listening to my dad that don't say nothing doesn't mean say something. It means the opposite. Don't say a damn thing. A double negative doesn't make a positive. It makes a negative. Sorry. A double negative doesn't make a positive. It makes a negative. Same in Spanish and French. 
standard English gets it wrong. Speaking to kids my age of family reunions, I learned dropping the verb to be from a sentence means the action is happening that instant. Lisa running means she's running right now, maybe to catch a bus or evade a swarm of bees. Add the word be back to the, excuse me, add the word be back to the sentence and it, and blah, read that sentence one more time. Add the word be back to the sentence and we're describing a habit. Melanie B running means she runs often as a hobby or to train for a sport. If you had to handicap a race between Lisa and Melanie, go with Melanie. She gets more practice. She be running. I picked up from my mom that the word behind indicates physical position. Boy, get from behind me. But also communicates cause and effect, a synonym for as a result of. If she doesn't smarten up behind this, she might say, then she's a doggone fool. At 15, I probably couldn't have articulated those, sorry. At 15, I probably couldn't have articulated all those details, but I recognize them the way many people growing up between two cultures learn to acknowledge and navigate the divide. If my sisters and I couldn't achieve the fluency with African-American culture my parents enjoyed, we could at least know our way around it. Our parents made sure. So if at 15, I needed an explainer on something like the meaning of Tuskegee, my parents would have considered me ill-equipped. Yeah, that one, that one's, I really like that. That was really funny. And this, uh, but it was one of these things. So like, yeah. I went like, that's a detour and I'm here explaining the different ways African-Americans use the word behind mm-hmm. or the verb to be, you don't need that explained, right? A lot of the African-American audience for this book, they don't need that explained, but they might appreciate, you know, just being affirmed. Yeah, like, here's someone who gets it. They're, they're, the way I talk is not just broken English; it's just the way we talk. Right. You know, and then white people read that and they're like, "What? That's not just bad grammar." No, <laughs> he must be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but that was like, yeah, like people my age, your age, you know, who grew up with parents who grew up in the '50s or '60s or whatever, like they don't need. I don't, you, you don't need me to explain to you. Right. You know, how black American English works. Yeah. You know, but especially, you know, to a Canadian audience, that's new information to a lot of people. Cause I want to talk about this and maybe, maybe you you can shed some light or give your perspective on this. Um, there's something about like, like we talked about earlier, being from the Maryland, the DMV or whatever people call it being from the area, as we, <laughs> we say, uh, there's something about that. Like, it's cool. It's you make you dream uninhibited. Yep. But then also growing up in in, in a suburban town, there is uh, something you don't get being black growing up in New York City or growing up in Toronto uh, with other black people from the Caribbean. And I was I was having this conversation actually I think with uh, Damian Lemon about when we were talking about small acts the um, the uh, Steve McQueen series on Amazon about the black okay. uh, uh, it's an anthology about black folks in in London during different time periods. Um, there's a blackness to me when you meet the in the, from like Caribbeans and. It's, just, it's almost like a blackness that's almost uncut in a way mm-hmm. that we 
like somebody like me and maybe you to to an extent don't have or just being surrounded by it where you kind of feel like that's a missing piece also from my youth i guess i don't know i, I don't well, know the difference I, I mean the difference for people who have come here from the caribbean mm-hmm. is that most countries down there most of the people are black and they ain't never dealt with like a critical mass of white people till they came here. Mm. You know? Yeah. Whereas, you know, our parents are, our families are several generations deep dealing with a bunch of white people. And so there, there are differences, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just always, I thought about that when I was watching it's something that's kind of fascinating me, to me where it's like learning about this other this other form of blackness because you didn't get all they didn't get all the way to north america mm-hmm. and then it's something that's oh it's a little something a little more uncut about these folks that's just interesting to me yeah um one of and then i guess the last piece i want to talk about i want to talk about your dad i don't want to spoil too much of anything you feel free to talk about yeah. Uh, whatever you wanted to, however you want to say it, but I just wanted to bring it up because I, like I said, I recently lost my dad. I don't know. Maybe there's a drinking game uh, for people that listen to the show where I talk <laughs> about my my dead dad. I talked about him when he was alive too. Yeah. But I think I don't. Maybe you can speak to this now that he's gone. It's just it's it. Everything kind of hits differently when you mm-hmm. think about him. Um. And and one of the reasons I related to this book was just about there's people in my family I don't really talk to anymore <laughs> uh, because of what they said after yeah. my dad died. And oh, I think, hey, oh yeah, we had we had a lot of that. Okay, yeah, and and it's like my dad wasn't perfect, but he when you're a kid you kind of look at your dad or both your parents as superheroes, mm-hmm. and then when you realize that they're just a he was just a guy trying to figure it out then what for me it's like i was really lucky mm-hmm. to have a regular dude trying to figure something out and he was really a, a good father and i think he was a, a really good man um my favorite part of the book the thing that made me cry in the airport oh. was uh the the moment where your dad makes your knee gets you makes you <laughs> yes okay that's yeah. the thing that got me i was like oh, what? Man. i was like i was like oh my i was like oh god <laughs> i don't know I, I that's the part that got me uh yeah. maybe speak on that a little bit talk about your dad uh how did you deal with that as a young age i was 41 when my dad died you were what 15 16 uh, i had just i was 17 turning 17. 18 Okay, 17. I was about two months out from turning 18. Okay. And so for your audience, um, and again, I I, I really hope you all go out, uh, buy the book, download the book legally, sign it out from the the library, something. But uh, yeah, like the, the, this whole thing pivots on uh, my dad's illness uh, and his death. (laughs) How that brings out the absolute worst in my grandparents, both mm-hmm. his mom and then my mom's dad. Uh, so the part you're talking about, um, the way I set it up in the book is 
that scene. So what happens is just to get the read, just to get your audience caught up. You know, I was in like sixth sixth grade. I wasn't. I was a pretty good football player. I was my first year playing. Seventh grade, I just got fatter. Everyone else got like taller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I kind of sucked at football that year, and I was just getting my ass kicked every Saturday. Okay, and um, so I'm eleven, turning twelve, and uh, you know the equipment they gave us came with these little knee pads that you stick in your pants because the football pants have these pouches on the inside. That's where the thigh pads go. At least back in those days they did. Now it's, it's more built into your base layer. Mm. But, uh, and, you, and they would give you these little knee pads, and the knee pads were flimsy, 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 flimsy. And at some point my dad finally sees these knee pads. He's like, what is this? And I was like, it's my knee pad. He's like, this is it? I'm like, yeah. So my dad worked in an airplane factory. So one day he just takes my knee pad, like on, on the weekend, <laughs> goes to work, uh, comes back for my next practice, and he's got like these new knee pads that he made at work. And it was like a stiffer foam, and they, uh, he wrapped them in duct tape so that <laughs> when I got flung on my face into mud puddles every week, which happened a lot that year, at least the, the, the new knee pads, the new sturdy knee pads would not uh, get get wet, <laughs> right? And so, but that so that that happened the year I was in seventh grade, so I was eleven, turning twelve, when that happened. When he saw these flimsy knee pads and said, "I can do better," um, but I didn't include it in a passage of the book where I was actually eleven years old. Right, I included it in a passage in the book where I was turning eighteen. This is after my dad had died, but I was just talking about football and what I remember about football mm-hmm. and how football, you know, it was a sport that I played, but it was also like a series of these moments, these little adventures with my dad. Um, but I also did it that way too, because, you know, that's how memory works. Right. That uh, a person is gone, they passed away. But like months later, like you remember them, you think of them and like in a way that you almost trick yourself into thinking they're still there. Or just if you weren't, if you didn't know any better, you would think they were still alive just because they, it's, it's like when you t- have a dream yes. and you can't tell if it was real. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so that's why I, I chose to introduce that moment then as opposed to earlier. Cause this is the thing about creative writing, right? Is that, you know, the facts are all true, but you line them up in a way that tells a story and makes a point and makes a bigger point. Yes. Um, and leads and so to, it's not a straight narrative, yes. you know. Yeah. There's a lot of d- details in 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 this book about myself, details about me and about other people in my family, about our shared history. Um, that if you know my mom, knew my family, talk, if heard us talk about how we grew up, you know these details are going to be in the book, but you just don't know where or when. Uh-huh. Like the, the thing about my mom. Uh, so, guys, my mom used to walk around with a wooden spoon in her purse when we were young. And so uh, if we were in public and we got out of line, she would pull us over like in the stairwell in the mall and then open the purse and say, look in here. And you had to lean over and look and see the wooden spoon. It's very much like when a gangster like pulls up their shirt to reveal the gun. This is what my mom would do with the wooden spoon, right? So anyone that's heard us talk talk about growing up, you know that's going to be in there. But again, that's not, that detail is not, in a scene that takes place when I'm little. That detail is in a scene that takes place, you know, around my dad's hospital bed 
during the last couple days of his life. Um, but again, it's just in how you line up the details to make certain points because you it's those details. If you just run them all in chronological order, like you kind of miss out on what those details actually say about you right? or your family in your story. But if you can uh, take them out of chronological order, even though the story is broadly chronological, but like arrange them sort of out of time, they can make a, uh, they can p- make the point much more strongly than they would if, if you had just told it point A to point B in order. But it's funny. It was the, it was the, it was the knee pad scene that got you. Huh? Everyone has like a different yeah. trigger in this book. You, like the people that have come to me, the thing so many people that, that grew up where I grew up, remember is just like uh, the music store scene at the very, very beginning mm. when my dad's looking through the records and he sees the white blues guy named Delbert McClinton, because people are like, oh, HMV music in Square One in Mississauga. I remember it. Oh, my heart. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's funny, like, what triggered everybody has a different button that gets pushed. Yeah, that because it's just recently losing my dad, and it was just like, and then just being, I was at the airport, and I was like, awkwardly crying. With, <laughs> in this term, I was like, ah! Oh, no. Ah. I'm sorry, man. If it makes no, you no, feel better. If it makes you feel better, I cried on a flight to Puerto Rico watching the HBO documentary about uh, Oscar de la Hoya. Thinking of your dad or just in general? Just in general. Just a scene where he reveals that his mom used to abuse him. Oh. And that uh, he, the mom abused him and the brother used to bully him and he beat up the brother one day. Mm-hmm. And that uh, it was one of these fights he was in. And basically the way he motivated himself to kick the guy's ass was like he saw his mom and he saw his brother as he kicked the guy's ass and Mm. the brother's watching from the sideline and he's like the only other time i've seen that look on oscar's face was the day he kicked my ass but he only kicked the brother's ass because he was so sick of getting beat by the mom and he couldn't beat the mom Mm. so all that together like yeah that got me i gotta watch that it's a it's 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 a lot a lot harder hitting than I thought it would be given that, you know, Oscar is he also produced. still a, yeah. And he's also just still a, a fight promoter who, you know, especially in this age of content and alleged documentary filmmaking, people are just into content and yeah. infomercials. That's what drive to survive is. And it'd be very easy for him to do something like the Toronto Maple Leafs have, or like the most recent seasons of hard knocks where like, here's a behind the scenes look at training camp, but everybody's happy. There's no conflict. This guy yeah. running routes. It's like, oh my god, Aaron Aaron Rodgers is charming. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I know. But he, no, he he, like, you talk about vulnerability. Like Oscar was willing, right? Yeah, to, to show vulnerability and fall it's, in his face a few times. It's fascinating this day and age where the people we grew up watching, and then the people that grew up alongside us in the NBA and in the NFL, now have these platforms that just to tell their story. And it's really, I really like it. I really en- enjoy because because a lot of times, especially football, because you know you don't see these guys as these guys' face. You you kind of get to see who they mm-hmm. are. Uh, that Barry Sanders uh, documentary was pretty good. I haven't meaning to see that one. I have not seen it yet. That one made me think about my our dad. I wasn't expecting that uh, to make me cry in my mother's basement on Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh. 
I was just like, I was just like, oh, I'm just watch this. I love Barry Sanders. I'm like, <laughs> oh God, you know. <laughs> but it's it's fat. But that. But I think that is. I think sports, in general, is where the quote unquote regular straight males go to cry. I think. Yes. These documentaries. Maybe a Pixar movie will get you every now and then, <laughs> but for the most part, it's these—it's the the outside the lines of it all, uh, where you kind of, it's okay to 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 let it out because mm. a sports hero made you cry or something. Exactly. You know. Exactly. I think that's our. Was it what is it? Catnip for dudes? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Us, yeah. No, but exactly. this this was great, man. Uh, I don't want to hold you too much longer, but I really love the book. Like I texted you, I think. Can you get be be considered for a Pulitzer? I don't know how it works. I have no clue. Uh, given the, given that I am a U.S. citizen, yeah, this may be possible, but I I do not know how awards work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. Well, you got my seal of approval. This I will ask. I will ask the agent. Yeah, this is this is it's terrific. My fighting family, borders and bloodlines, and the battles that made us. It's really great. I, I talked about it last week on the show. I, I think if you read, this is one thing to to get. Uh, and it's a and Morgan. Thank you for the time. Thank you for opening up with with this with this piece of literature. And um, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. Take it easy, everybody.